You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Or no deal. Deal or no deal. This is the name of a television show that's become popular in various countries. It actually started in the Netherlands. It's become a computer game and other sort of forms of it, board game, to be able to make a decision. Should you or should you not take what's given to you? For those of you who are not familiar with this game of deal or no deal, the centerpiece of the game format is the final round, the the case game or the main game. It's played with up to 26 boxes, cases. The contestant is given a box, and each of these boxes are assigned random amounts of money. And the contester, the contender rather, has to determine do they go with the box offered to them or do they keep the box given to them? They don't know. Are they settling for something less or are they keeping something more? You're kind of drawn into the drama of it. Ah, what are they keeping? What are they giving up? To deal or no deal? Do we we make a deal, make the trade, or we keep it or not? Throughout the game, the player is offered all this different opportunity, prizes to quit the entire time. Deal or no deal? Deal or no deal? If the contestant rejects every deal and eliminates all their cases or boxes, they keep whatever money's in the original case or box, only to find out was it less or more than they were otherwise being offered earlier. There's only two people in the history of deal or no deal in the United States that have won the ultimate prize, which is a million dollars before taxes, of course. Jessica Robinson and Tamara Rodriguez. Oftentimes in game shows, not simply in deal or no deal, the the crowd is yelling out, telling the contestant what they should do. I can remember still as a child watching The Price is Right. As people's names were called and they came running down, they're all excited and sometimes they have on goofy outfits. And then Bob Barker and all the following hosts after him would sort of lay out this item and then you had to guess how much that thing was worth. A couch, a car, a stereo, and you had to guess the price. And if you went over, you, you were disqualified. If you went under, the question was who got closest. And the person would often turn to the crowd, and they would look at their mom or their sister or their friend, and the crowd would be yelling, losing their mind. And the person had to decide, do I, do I listen to them or do I make a decision? And ah, I don't know. And, and only to find out, did they make a good decision or bad decision? Should they have listened to the crowd or should they have just shut the crowd out and trusted what they thought was right or wrong? The book of Galatians reminds us in some way of this game show. People are promised a prize greater than they could ever imagine. Ever imagine getting on their own. Eternal life. Forgiveness from God, their creator. They have been taught the way Faith in Christ. But the crowd shouts out to them, 
The crowd being the Judaizers, these ethnic Jews who also claim to be Christians, but are telling these new Christians after Paul has left the scene, listen to us. Don't settle for what's just in your hand. You don't have enough to win the bidding prize. You need to add to that. And they're compelling. They're persuasive. They seemingly have got Bible text to support their point. They, they go back to the original books like Genesis and chapter 17 and speak about circumcision. Like, listen, if you really want to be a child of God, you really want to claim God as your father and Jesus as his son, as your savior, then you must do what we've been taught in the Old Testament to do, which is to obey God's law. Starting first for all the males who are the new Christians you need to be circumcised because that's what it says to do in Genesis. And they're, they're tempted like it. Do I trust what I've been told by Paul? Or do I listen to the crowd? Deal or no deal? And Paul is saying, friend, listen to me. You're not simply gambling with money that you didn't have to begin with. You're gambling with your life for an eternity. And if you get this wrong... It don't just be wrong, like you made a left turn, you should have made a right turn. You'll be wrong and you'll pay the price for an eternity. And so he tells the Galatians, look at me, listen to me, because if you get this wrong, it will come at great cost. You think about Galatians chapter 5, which is where we are this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, open it to Galatians chapter 5. If you're joining us for the first time, we're going through this book of Galatians. It's a letter that Paul writes to these Christians who are gathering these churches in southern Galatia area, the sort of Mediterranean area. Galatians has really kind of presented to us in these previous chapters, these chapters and verses, distinctions would have been given later, not in the original writings. Chapters 1 and 2 are the first major section of Galatians. Paul has attempted to prove the legitimacy of his message by demonstrating his independence. He's like, listen, I'm called by God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. No one told me. No one taught me. In fact, I even had to correct Peter one time when he started getting it wrong. And then Galatians chapter 3 and 4 is the second major section where Paul wants to do the same thing as the first section, but this time he wants to start using some theological, some biblical arguments. He's like, listen, look at the text with me. Listen here. Read here for yourself. Understand it for yourself. Listen to what Isaiah says. You can track it yourself. Paul is basically saying, nothing new here. Just copying, pasting what the Bible's been saying this entire time. No novelty, no creativity no wild imagination, a straight biblical truth. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul applies his message to the situation that the Galatians are living in. And we saw last week in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 1, this major theme here of freedom. Paul's call for freedom in chapter 5, verse 1. In fact, let's just look at it briefly. Go ahead and go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. That's the main command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's call for freedom here in verse 1 
this transitional verse from chapter 4 into chapter 5. And he's like, listen, the purpose of Christ's work was to set Jews free from the curse of the law. The law had a purpose. It wasn't bad. God gave it. It intended to accomplish its purpose. But now it's been fulfilled in Christ. So it's fulfilled its purpose. And he also wants to make sure that the Gentiles enjoy the same freedom that the Jews should now be enjoying in Christ, which is to break their chains in disobedience to sin. You just cannot overstate the significance of this word freedom. Freedom. Oh, to dream of it and to finally be given it. And Paul's like, why would you want to give that up? If you're taking notes this morning or just kind of want to know where we headed by way of sort of the main point Here's the main point of today's message in Galatians chapter 5 now, verses 2 through 12. You have to choose whose works will save you, yours or Christ. You cannot choose both. That's why the title of today's message is Saved by Works, Yours or Christ's. Because the main point Paul's trying to get across here is that you have to choose whose works will save you, yours or Christ. You cannot choose both. Let's come to our first point here, verses two, two through six. Consider yourself warned. Look with me, Galatians 5. Let's read it together. You follow along as I read it out loud. Verses two through six, Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We'll stop there. Paul's first point to us this morning is consider yourself warned. He basically says here in verse 2, hey, listen, I, Paul, like he's basically saying, hey, mark my words. Listen to me. Mark my words. I'm on record of telling you. You cannot say you did not know. This kind of reminds me of what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders where he says, listen, my hands are innocent of blood. I have preached the whole, God, the whole counsel of God's word. All of God's word I've explained to you. You can't claim you did not know. He says, remember what I'm telling you. And then he has this recognition of what he says here. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's not uncommon today to hear Christians talk about a time when they invited Jesus into their heart. Uh, maybe even actually praying those exact words, Jesus, I invite you into my heart. It would probably be interesting to just understand that that actual phrase is actually never found in the Bible. But it's understandable and completely explainable why such terminology has kind of made traction in the church. Because it is true what Paul says in Romans 10, which is whoever confesses Jesus with their mouth and believes in their heart that Christ is raised from the dead, that they will be saved. 
And oftentimes Jesus speaks about the heart. And the idea is like, so goes the heart, so goes the life. And what you believe is what you will do. And so let's take a look at what you believe. So along the way, we've kind of picked up this phrase, well, I've invited Jesus in my heart. Well, just to be clear, there's like, you're not inviting Jesus to come live into like this organ in your body. There he is. I can see him now. Basically saying into the center of your personhood. Who you are, what you desire, what you aspire to, what you, what you long for, everything about you, this heart being the center of your life, you give that to Christ. The Judaizers, though, they have a different way of someone saying it. Their perverse way of saying, I invite the law onto my body. I invite the law onto my body. How would they do this? If you accept circumcision, that's the phrase that Paul is using here in the text, verse 2, if you accept circumcision. What's interesting about the statement, if you accept circumcision, he, he does it, what's known in the middle voice, all the English people are like, finally, we get the tenses represented. It's a middle voice that lasts all that time English class, now made sense. Idea of middle voice means something that you've submitted yourself to, something that's done to you. you. You voluntarily, willingly have it be done to you. It's simply not just a matter about being circumcised. He's saying essentially the reason for the circumcision is that the Galatians are essentially saying because of the influence of the Judaizers, they'll be confessing, they're submitting themselves to the law of God to confirm they're saved. They think Jesus Christ is insufficient. The Spirit is not good enough as a guide for living. They need Moses and Moses' law to be obeyed to know that they're accepted by God. One needs to become a Jew to become a child of God. That's what they are wrongly taught. And this is where Paul reacts in our letter when he says here, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage you. Then he just doubles down. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, just so you know, this conversation is not unique to the Galatians. Do me a favor. Keeping your hand in Galatians, turn to the left in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 2. And as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible and you'd love to have a Bible that you can read and it's accurately translated, we have them available for you for free at the Welcome Center. Just go by there afterwards and say, hey, can I get one of those free Bibles? I'd love to have one. Pastor X says I can have one. And can you turn the air conditioning in this place? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Welcome to humidity. Romans chapter 2. Track with me here, verse 17. Paul's writing a totally different church. In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about the Galatians. I mean, excuse me, all the Gentiles talks about the Gentiles and the Jews, and he starts talking about the Gentiles at the end of chapter 1, in the middle way through chapter 1, and he gets into chapter 2, he starts talking to the Jews. He's like, I'm talking to everybody in the church. And then look at what he says in verse 17. And this is really good, because it bears on what we're talking about in Galatians. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 2. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, 
an instructor of the foolish. He's saying this in sarcastic speech here. A teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's like, those who take pride in the fact that you're Jewish and that you know the Bible. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What? Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right, now I know what you're thinking. I don't know what we just read, except there's a lot of talk about circumcision, which seems awkward. The way by which God's people were marked amongst a number of ways, the religious practices of sacrifice, their dietary restrictions, their circumcision of their infant males, which had a physical good effect for their people. Part of this was how they prided themselves in that we do these things, God approves us. He's like, you do the right things, or so you think, but it's never enough because if you break the law in one place, you've broken the whole law. It's all for nothing. So if you're trusting in your record of doing what's right, you're in trouble. Whereas the person who's never been circumcised, never had dietary restrictions, cannot claim to be ethnically Jewish, if they have their heart circumcised, meaning they've given their life to Christ, they trust in God's substitute, the Savior, then they actually are accepted while you are rejected. And all of a sudden, the Jews who took pride in their ethnicity now can only find comfort in Christ. Paul, to a completely different audience in the book of Galatians, is telling non-Jewish people, don't be like them. Now, he's not making a statement against Jewish people. Paul is himself Jewish. This isn't an ethnic racism issue. This is a distortion and a twisting of the Bible to say God loves you because of what you have done. There are some of you still sitting here this morning who think you can cover up your wrongdoing, your sin, your rebellion. You can kind of bury it under the ground under a pile of good works. And you're hoping that when God glances over and looks down on you, he sees that pile of good works and is covering 
The things that you know are wrong. And that can just run the gamut from public sins to private sins, from things, sins with your tongue to sins with your body to sins with your relationships to sins with your money. That you're hoping you can kind of bury that. And God's like, through his servant Paul, like, I see all of that. I see all of that. What do you, well, you can hide nothing from me. And if you're trusting in your good works, you're trusting in your religious practices for God to accept you, he will not. And here's the deal. I think you already know this. I think if you have a moment with me right now to consider why do I not have peace that I thought I otherwise would have right now? Why am I struggling to find hope when I otherwise thought it would have been secured by now? It's because you're looking to the wrong source of that, of that hope and that peace. To look any other place than in the crucified, resurrected Savior is to not find it. And Paul is telling the Galatians, listen, I told you so. I'm telling you now. You continue in the text in Galatians chapter 5 as he kind of, you know, says it twice in verse 2 and 3. And in chapter, chapter 5, verse 4, he talks about being severed from Christ. If, if you really trust in the law, he says, you would be justified by the law. And if you were to be justified by law, he says, you have fallen away from grace. Now, let me, let me take a few minutes here and address something that this text introduces. It like, it like verbally raises a hand on behalf of some of you in the room this morning. And the hand some of you are raising in your mind is because of either what you have heard from others or what has been taught to you and perhaps some of the church backgrounds you've been a part of, which is, Eric, I have been taught or I have heard or I sometimes even doubt myself, I wonder, that I can lose my salvation. And is that what this text is talking about? Have I maybe fallen away from grace? I was saved. Now maybe I'm not saved. I want to be saved again. But if I do, what if I lose it again? I'm kind of on the seesaw. And the question you're, you're asking is, is that what this means? Can I, can I lose my salvation? Well, let's, let me take a few minutes to address this because I think this is important. And I, I want, for those of you who maybe think this way or struggle with this, I, nothing else, hear me say the next five minutes to you. First of all, let's define what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has fully trusted in Jesus Christ as the only Savior for their forgiveness of their sins. They now possess the Holy Spirit as a pledge of their inheritance in Christ. They have been forgiven, and they have been given the gift of the Spirit. Now, just to be clear, they've been given the gift of the Spirit not because they spoke in tongues. Not true what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that. It's a distortion and misrepresentation of the text. Given a spirit as a pledge of the inheritance because your faith is in Christ. That's what a Christian is. But what happens when someone becomes a Christian? So I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the question, can I lose my salvation? We're going to come back to that question. But, but before we get back to that question, let's, let's have a little review course, shall we? Let's just take a refresher. Now, for some of you, it's a refresher. For those of you, this would be like an introduction. You're like, if I was to become a Christian, what would happen to me? Oh, thank you for asking. 
What happens? When a Christian, when someone becomes a Christian, they are justified. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. God makes a legal declaration that you are righteous. For a Christian to lose salvation, God would have to go back on his word and undeclare what he has already previously declared. As if God's like, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You're like, oh, I hope God loves me today. Instead, you have been absolved of all guilt. You will not be tried again. You will not be brought before the judge again. Secondly, they are given eternal life. This is what John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible says. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would be given eternal life or, or temporal life. Could be eternal. Maybe it just depends on them. No. That's not what it says. It says it will be given eternal life. They'll spend forever in heaven with God. God promises that if you believe, you'll have eternal life. For a Christian to lose salvation, eternal life would have to be redefined. Does not eternal mean eternal? Third, they are given and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. At the moment of faith, not speaking in tongues, at the moment of faith, the new Christian is marked and sealed with with the Spirit. For a Christian to lose salvation, God would have to erase the mark, withdraw the Spirit, cancel the deposit, break the promise, revoke the guarantee, keep the inheritance, forego the praise, and lessen his glory. He's not doing that. Because every promise he makes, he keeps. They're also redeemed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. A price has been paid for them to be freed from slavery to sin. For a Christian to lose salvation, God himself would have to revoke the purchase of the individual for whom he paid with the blood of his Christ, of his son, Jesus Christ. They've also become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. A Christian is not simply an improved person, nicer, kinder, sweeter, more forgiving. They are a new creation. Hearts of stone removed, hearts of flesh given. An entirely new creation, and they are, in the words of Scripture, in Christ. They're also promised glorification, Romans 8.30. Glorification comes with justification. They're inseparable. It's a chain that cannot be broken. All those whom God justifies are promised to be glorified. This promise will be fulfilled when Christians receive their perfect resurrection, bodies in heaven, either when they die or when Christ returns. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, God cannot lie. There's no small print in the Bible. Nothing can separate a child of God from the Father's love. Nothing can remove a Christian from God's hand. When God, what God began in us, he will complete in us. Now, you're like, okay, Eric, I hear that. But can we go back to this question over here? Because I think, Eric, I have been told, or I still believe, two counterpoints to that. Counterpoint number one, what about Christians who live in a sinful, unrepentant lifestyle? Counterpoint number two, what about Christians who reject the faith and deny Christ? Certainly, something has to be said about that. Great question. I'm proud of you for asking it. This great relationship we have right now. You're not saying a word. You're getting tons of credit. Like, I wish it was like this when I was in school. You need to understand this. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian actually is. That's not judgmentalism. That's biblical discernment. The Bible teaches that a true Christian will not live in a state of continual 
unrepentant sin. Christians will fight against sin. We'll be aware of it. First John says we can't deny that we have it. If we confess it, we're faith, he's faithful just to forgive us of it. So we're in this battle. That's what the Lord's Supper does. It reminds us every time we come together, man, I need a Savior, and praise God I found one in Jesus. But for someone to profess to be a Christian and live knowingly, consistently, unrepentantly in the world, you and I had every reason to believe. I, I really wonder if they're a Christian. This is why churches do church discipline is because they're saying by consistent, prayerful pursuit, I don't know that we can any longer say we affirm them being in Christ. We're not taking away their salvation. We're not the Catholic church to mix up theology. We don't believe that. We're just saying we can't affirm publicly what they're professing personally, which is to be identified with Christ. Jesus himself said, you shall know them by their fruit. And honestly, I'm not seeing fruit in keeping with godliness. What about those who would perhaps walk away? It's certainly true that that happens. The Bible says that everyone who departs from the faith is demonstrating that he was never truly a Christian. 1 John 2, 19. He or she may have been religious, they may have appeared like a Christian. They may have even done religious works that we're greatly impressed by and even maybe helped by their writings, their teachings, their relationship with us, only to find out in the mystery of God's work, they were actually never converted. It was Jesus himself who says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, as people at the end of their life are coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, they're saying, Lord, Lord. They seemingly got the theology right. They know to address him for who he is. And then they say, look at the things I did. And they begin to line up the religious works that they did. And man, like they're impressive. They're volunteering. They're helping. They're like, man, they got the theology. They got their works. And Jesus says what? Depart from me. I never knew you. The point here is not to undermine your assurance of salvation. Your faith is in Christ, it's in Christ, Christ saves. It's to give you discernment of how to reconcile these tensions. Coming back to our text in Galatians, verses two through six, he says, consider yourself warned. Now in verses seven through 12, he says, may the Lord see you through. May the Lord see you through. Look at verse seven and following. He tells the Galatians, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And he just, he just goes full send here, verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, that just got serious. Verse 7, you were running well. I don't know if you've ever been to a 5K or a 10K race. Some of you are like, why would I do that? Well, that's a fair question, I suppose. Others of us have done that. You could perhaps can pray for us. It's always interesting. You can always tell the new runners at a race. They typically have on like, you know, new running clothes, new shoes. They're dialed in. They're ready. They're super nervous. They're probably going to the bathroom five times already. The gun goes off. They take off running. And it's like they are, can, they're like entered in the Olympics. They go all out. And you know what's about to happen. You're like, well, I'm about to see them in about 10 minutes. 
when I run by them. Because it's just that the crowd and the moment and the excitement, you get all excited and they just take off running. And then they, what happens is they run faster than they've trained for. And their body like, you know, kind of keeps rejecting and objecting and keep like, can we have a moment? This is not what we agreed to. And finally the body takes over like, fine, now listen to me. I'm just going to pull this back. Next thing you know, they're like power walking for Jesus. And you're like, huh, that didn't go well for you. They got burned out. The Galatians, man, they started well. Exciting. We see this here at Grace Church. New Christians, man. New in the faith. Man, they're getting Bibles. They're reading. They're like in it. They're like fellowshipping. It's exciting. They started well. And then the temptations come. And then the daily reminders of the challenges come. What goes from a run becomes a slow jog, becomes a walk, and eventually a standstill. They're not dropping out of the race, but they are surprised at how much endurance their Christian life takes. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Run the race with endurance. And the Galatians weren't. He says that to them. In verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who kept you from this? It started out really well. He talked about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. On August 29, 2004, the final event of the Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece, it's the marathon. And a Brazilian distance runner who was surprising everybody was in first place. Nobody expected him to be doing that well, let alone to be leading the marathon. With four miles to go, he had a 30-second lead in the race. And out of nowhere, this runner, Delima who few had picked to doing so well, all of a sudden was rushed from the left side of the course by a viewer. Some defrocked Irish priest who is out of his mind for other issues in his life as well and literally pushed the marathoner off the course into the crowd. Everyone around was like shocked until finally people restrained this man and let the runner get back on the course which he did, started to resume his marathon. But unfortunately, with over two miles to go, he was overtaken by a runner from Italy who ended up taking home gold. And as if that wasn't bad enough, another runner from the United States passed him and he took home the silver medal. And all he did was finish third of what otherwise was going to be his gold medal debut at the Olympics. At the last event. Shaken, he told the press afterwards when being interviewed, I was not expecting it at all. I couldn't defend myself. I was totally concentrated on my race. I had to get back into my competitive rhythm, and I really had lost a lot of it. It's extremely difficult to find that rhythm again. Friends, what happened to the Galatians is that the Judaizers pushed them off course. Here's the question. Who is pushing you off course to distract you from following Christ and trusting only in Christ? 
What false teaching, what false thoughts, what wrong friendships are diverting you from following the path that God has for you to follow Christ? He speaks here in verse 9 about a little leaven loving the lump. He's speaking to the church in Galatia. He's reminding them, listen, you got to be on the lookout, people. Just because everyone smiles and is happy and high fives and hugs and has lunch, it does not mean everybody is committed to Christ. False teaching comes into churches often with the same vocabulary and the same zeal to then divert people away from the truth of God's word. But look where his confidence is. is in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord. It's not in Paul. It's not in the Galatians. His ultimate confidence is in the Lord. Paul's hope is where it has always been. That what God has pledged to do, he'll do mysteriously. God knows he's using Paul, so God wants to be faithfully used by the Lord. Paul wants to be used by the Lord to do a work, but he trusts the Lord. Friends, I gotta tell you, as a pastor, that's so comforting to me, because honestly, I would stay up all night worried about you guys. You know why? Because sheep wander. We wander. Good green pasture, why not go over here? Hey, moron, come back over here. But it looks so much better over here. But that's a cliff. Come back over here. Where are you going? Wait, where are you going? Have you guys conspired against us to go in all opposite directions? Paul's doing devotions for the elders right now. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. Chris, do you have confidence in the Lord? Ronald, do you have confidence in the Lord? Eric, do you have confidence in the Lord? If you don't, you're going to be burned out. God's work and God's word, by God's spirit, and God's people. Friend, you got to believe the same way, or you'll be undone worried about your friends, worried about your children, worried about your spouse, worried about your church. Satan would love to divide us, and if he can't divide us, he'd love at least to distract us and discourage us. Paul won't let it happen. I'll tell you what he would love to happen, though. Look at what he says in verse 12. He's hot. He's not just resolved to like, oh, whatever. Verse 12, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Like, what's he talking about? Uh, He's basically talking about castration. He's like, hey, if it's all about doing the right thing, then do the whole thing. And he's kind of mocking them. Not the Galatians, the false teachers who are tempting the Galatians. He's kind of mocking them, and he's basically mocking them because he recognized the reality that if you're castrated, you can't reproduce. There's no more offspring. He'd like to see how many people sign up for that. He is aware that they had just become, in that sense, like the cult of Cybele in Asia Minor, the pagan priests of that cult. They actually castrated themselves under the religious worship of these false gods. He's like, they're just like that. Let them go be like that. Paul is serious about Christians being drawn away by false teaching, and we should be as well. Every so often, I run a computer program, uh, software on my computer program that does a scan of viruses and helps organize things that kind of apparently get out of whack. All you programmers know exactly what I'm talking about. Other people are like, I should probably do that this afternoon. <laughs> and it comes back clean. I'm like, that's cool. I like that. But then it gives me an option to do like a deep dive 
and go further into the hard drive to see if there's any malware there that's corrupting something that otherwise missed on the initial scan. Paul is doing a deep dive with the Galatians and running another scan here in chapter 5 to find the malware in their church. Here's the question you've got to answer for yourself this morning. Where is the malware in your life? Where are you believing something contrary to the word of God? And some of you don't even know that because you don't know the Bible. You just haven't read it. You're like, Eric will be my reader for me once a week on Sundays. That cannot work for you. You are wide open to, the, to just the attraction of satanic plots against you. You've got to know the word yourself. You've got to ask the question, is there any spiritual malware on my heart drive? Is there anything else you're trusting in to atone for that you're hoping that will pay for, that hoping to trust in that will cover any of your wrongdoings, any of your sins, any of your disobedience, that you're trying to find hope or peace in anything else? There's your malware. And God gives the Lord's Supper to purge that and remind us a body broken, a blood shed for a people who believe by faith in Christ. It's not their faith that saves them, it's Christ who saves them, and their faith alone in Christ alone saves them. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. Ronald's going to come up and lead us through the taking of the Lord's Supper. Friends, if this is not a time that you can identify that you've ever surrendered your life to Christ, the Lord's Supper is not for you, except it is for you. Don't take it, but understand it. Do you recognize that you're a sinner who needs a Savior? There's only one Savior to whom has been given. Jesus says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. John 14, 6. Give your life to Christ that you might be forgiven. And if you're being tempted to wander as a Christian, oh, the Lord's Supper calls you back. Back to be reminded any other hope will not deliver. I'll take it from me. Listen to the Galatians and Paul. They've taught us that this morning. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.